Hello, today in the Loopcast, I have Mark Andre Argentino, and we're discussing how do you preserve, index, and collect material, extremist materials. So this seems, it might at the initial cut might seem as a little duh, like it can't be that hard to find a book. It can't be that hard to, you know, cut and paste. But as we kind of dug into our series on examining influencers of the modern white supremacy movement, we we found out that it's actually quite weird because, for instance, I wanted to find a hard copy of Siege to thumb through. Couldn't find it, so I had to rely on an online copy. And then my mind started thinking, oh my gosh, if it's an online copy, has it been altered in any way? Because it is it's an extremist document. It is a, a book of political significance. So maybe the end messenger is editing it. And then this happened to me again when we started looking at the Lewis Beam. And then I just kept on thinking, like, what are the challenges here? You know, obviously I'm an amateur in this space. So could we find a professional to kind of guide us through these challenges of preserving, of collecting, of indexing extremist material? So with that, please welcome Mark. How's it going? Doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. I want to maybe start off with this idea of defining what a primary text and material is. I think it's kind of obvious that a book is a primary text, you know, written by, written by a participant in the movement. But when we start creating, you know, you know going out and, and beginning to collect and beginning to think about it, you know, what are we th- what are we looking for when we say primary texts and materials? I think the easiest way to consider a primary source is anything that is a an immediate or a firsthand account of a specific topic from people who had a direct connection with it. So people that are within a movement or engaging directly with an ideology, you know, so books written by individuals in a movement or linked to an ideology or influencers in a movement are the, the easiest one to identify, but you know, even original documents created by adherents or followers of a movement could be considered primary sources. You know, you could consider newspaper investigations from reporters who witness something firsthand. So, if you see individuals reporting live from, you know, a a protest or a violent incident, and they're sharing images and videos, that's considered primary material. Speeches from people, diaries, letters, and obviously. In the digital age, then we have data sets that you could scrape online, survey data, census data, you know, statistics, audio, podcasts, memes, the, the list kind of goes on. But as long for me, at least when I'm collecting this stuff, it has to come from within the community itself. And it can't be from an outsider looking in. So then outsider you don't want things from an outsider looking in so this is correct me if i'm wrong material that's being derived specifically from an extremist space right exactly and then that phrase extremist space how are we kind of defining it what are we what are we looking for what are we thinking about when we you know set the parameters for that it gets a little more challenging when we're considering it right now in the type of mixed spaces between offline and online spaces, and even more so during the pandemic with lockdowns and different impacts on people's movements. So for an extremist space is really any type of physical or immaterial 
space where individuals will come together, gather and share content, engage with each other, build community, communicate. So, you know, online ecosystems, social media platforms, messaging applications, chats, but even in person, if you're meeting at a rally or an event, or you're going to meetings for specific groups, or you're going out in the woods and camping or anything like that could be considered an extremist space. It's really more about a specific location inhabited by these actors. And it's hard to really tie this down because there is an amorphous nature to it as you know, technologies change and evolve and it impacts the way that we behave and engage with each other as individuals. And, you know, it's really more fluid now than it was where, you know, in a pre, let's say web 2.0 area where you were really fixed on these static websites or you were fixed in these static locations. So you'd go to your, you know, garage or your bar, or your back room to meet people, or you would go to a static page. Now there's a fluidity between these bases where you could be within tied to a specific movement and engaging across multiple platforms and meeting in real life and then chatting and texting with each other and you're engaging with mixed media. So these spaces are very fluid. You can be precise when you're talking about, you know, ecosystems on Telegram, extremist spaces there. A subset of, let's say, that platform is inhabited by extremists. On the flip side, you're going to see human rights defenders. You're going to see individuals simply communicating with each other as well in the same platform, but they're inhabiting different spaces within that platform. So... When we talk about and conceptualize extremist spaces, something that's kind of interesting to me is that you have this kind of severe kind of public recognition and public expression, but there's almost always very private. And what I mean by private, I mean sort of Telegram, Signal, WhatsApp. So when you approach these spaces, how do you balance between what is publicly expressed and then what is sort of privately expressed things that are expressed in like the dms or kind of you know whatsapp or signal so all the research that i do is based on open sources but even in spaces let's say like telegram or whatsapp if there is no public way to access it so they're not sharing a link publicly and they're not making it available to anyone who comes across specific ways to access it i wouldn't consider that private so on Telegram, it's a little weird because channels and groups are public by all definition. You could have links that you have to click to join, but anyone with that link can come and join it, which is why you're going to see very large groups. End-to-end -end encrypted communications are one-on-one -on -one or you know private chats where there are no links, but you have to be directly invited, require a type of behavior where you need to dupe an individual to get in or you need to you know do unethical things that join these aspects. And that's a line that uh, I avoid and try not to cross basically, because I do have institutional responsibilities when it comes to engaging in these spaces. But even from an open space, most of these individuals, when they're sharing primary material, they want it to be public because part of it is to propagate it and share their, their content to so other audiences engage with it and try to recruit more people or instill fear or hopefully They'll get a reporter to pick up on it and spread their message wider than they could from their own spaces. So when it comes to primary sources, it's not very difficult if you know where to look to get it because they do want it shared. There is an abundance of content that you would be able to find if you would go deeper into these spaces, but that requires 
different behaviors that are not acceptable within you know, academic or journalistic context. And I don't necessarily engage with, you know, actors or formers that might still be in this space to get material from them that gets leaked from these more extreme spaces. But there are ways to go through it. But I think from a general space, it has to be open source to access the material that I use. And there's a challenge with that, not only to getting extremist material, but when you want to you know, gather data about extremists, there's limitations on what some platforms will give you as, like, access to. So then there's the other discussion of do you breach terms of service to you know, use janky data science methods to kind of scrape information from a website to gather it because manually copy-pasting information is inefficient and definitely not a waste of my time. That's interesting. So you're, when you set out to create sort of collection, you're only, you're only looking at open sources, right? So there's no, it's open sources with, you know, academic and journalistic and ethical standards, as opposed to basically, you know, I don't know how to express this, but using less ethical sort of approaches. Like I won't pretend to be an extremist and go through a vetting process to try to access more secretive spaces or more closed spaces to get access to other material. There is a lot of obviously safety risk, but there's also an ethical risk of, you know, engaging these space, keeping credibility, you're, you're, you're navigating, you know, thin guidelines, and it's not always worth the risk. And even as, you know, an academic, I think you need to, to weigh the value of that type of stuff, because it doesn't only put you or your family, but it could put your institution at risk, and even, you know, reduce the credibility of other practitioners in the space. And that's not a good thing. But Again, I think like when it comes to open sources, there are ethical ways to gather information that a non-data scientist might be looking at you and like that I don't understand how you're achieving that. So it can't be right. And there's also that weird space from when you're doing like a qualitative quantitative method and you're using these mixed method approach that it does seem weird at times. And it's an interesting process when you go through it, at least from with your academic institution to approve some things when it comes to your research, there's a lot of, you know, education and explanation about how you achieve so many things. And it's just, I guess, you know, there's an assumption of privacy in a lot of these ecosystems because, you know, they, they know they're being watched by academics and law enforcement and journalists so from that, they do try to protect as much of their private information as possible, which does make it easier from an ethical perspective. But there's always going to be a risk and there's always going to be information that you do got to caretake because once you start gathering a lot of data, whether it's you know qualitative information or quantitative, in aggregate, you could gather a lot of information and that raises questions about you know privacy and ethics as well. So there is a caretaker aspect to the type of information that you gather and curate. And even in the curation aspect, I've, as an expert in extremism, you collect a certain amount of data and you say this is extremist data. You need to be aware of what you're labeling because if anyone takes that and you have individuals or content that's not extremist, you're responsible for the public perception of that type of content because non-experts will be going, oh, well, this is extremist content because an expert said so and people trying to defend themselves are oh, you're just trying to hide behind the veil and you don't want to be outed as an extremist. So there is you know, some responsibility behind one of the most basic aspects of research in the space. 
That's really interesting because it seems when you take a data set and you say this is an extremist data set, like it, it almost seems like, you know, if it's a broad enough data set, let's say pulled from Instagram and there's clearly, you know, there's, a, you know, content generators that are clearly very extreme. And then you end up at the lower end of the scale, getting people who are just maybe just dabbling or just reproducing. And now we've said that, oh, you're an extremist because you you've done this. So that really does make sense. Like I, I had never actually thought about it like that, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's it's a challenge when you think about it, especially when you're looking you know, it's easy when you're looking for terrorist organizations, like if you're collecting easier, let's say. So if you're looking, let's say, at ISIS content back in the day on Twitter and you're using ISIS hashtags and target names and you're using like a snowball effect, most likely you are going to gather a lot of individuals that are linked to that movement. And you're going to get some circumstance, like secondary individuals that are proximate to it, but, you know, engaging because of other reasons. But when you're looking at the, you know, more of like extreme movements, whether it's stuff like QAnon or incels or even militias in the US, you're, you're looking at content that at times what Aaron Saltman and I like to say to each other is awful, but lawful. And then within that, you do have some illegal content. So when you're curating this data, you need to acknowledge that there is a lot of awful and lawful stuff. And if you're going to call it an extremist data set, you really need to clean that data and drill it down to what is your extremist data set. QAnon is a good example of that because it's a real spectrum of extremism where you have, you know, acceptable extremism in the sense that it's not illegal to be an extremist or hold extremist views. But then when you get to the violent content or the harmful content, that's when you can start labeling that differently. So when I was doing data collection that's on Pestel QAnon, this group of you know influencers on the Instagram space that were more from the natural health mom blogs you know MLM type space. It's a lot of it is awful and lawful, but because they were linked to QAnon, a lot of people were simply labeling them as violent extremists. And in the most case, they were not. It is an extremist data set. There was harm in the case of like COVID-related medical information, but it's not. There's a difference when you're looking at let's say. QAnon in the case of, let's say, Ghost Ezra, who's hosting a lot more neo-fascist, neo-Nazi, anti-Semitic content on Telegram mixed in with the QAnon conspiracies, then you're looking at something that really falls more into the violent extremist space. Even though you both have the QAnon label, you need to treat them differently. And you might get the same data by using similar hashtags, similar keywords, similar users. But at the end, when you're comparing the two you know, extremist spaces on different platforms, you need to acknowledge that you need to treat that data differently because if I'm sharing, let's say that with other researchers or I write a paper about it and it's picked up by platforms and they start censoring content, if it's going to have an impact on how you label this information. And I think that's very important. And it's not always clear cut when you're looking at dangerous conspiracies. And it's even more difficult when you're looking at some of the extremist movements or militia movements, because there are some of those concepts that is terrible and awful and unacceptable, but it's not illegal. And that needs to be acknowledged and treated in a specific way when you're curating that information. Interesting. So I want to maybe pull back a bit and, and kind of look at your collection process, especially on um, let's, kind of start off with hard copies because this kind of was kind of fascinating to me because when we did our interview on James Mason's siege, 
it was very kind of the history of siege was kind of very infamous it's written it's you know discarded then picked up again curated discarded and then reproduced in an online space so when you when you begin your process for collecting extremist material do you have a preference for hard copy versus digital copies of books or is it simply you're going to get a hard copy if you can get a hard copy if it exists in a digital space then it exists in a digital space the majority of the extremist books that i have are digital copies simply because there's not a lot of publishers linked to you know extremism that are publishing book there's a couple of of presses that are well known for sharing content and there's some stuff that's not illegal that you know you're able to get your hands on and you could use those stuff like let's say turner diaries the anarchist cookbook uh hunter like those books are readily available on amazon and is just being sold and reproduced and you know, it's also books that you could get at your library in some instances. So if you're looking at some of the stuff, it, it's really easy to have access to some of these. But then if you get into things that are, you know, like James Mason Siege, in, at least in my Canadian context, he's now part of the prescribed individual. So you can't get some of his material. But, you know, some of these texts, you could find them at used bookstores. And the owners of these used bookstores are not necessarily going to be aware of what they have. And if you point it out, they'll be happy to quickly get rid of them. So it's one of the ways I've been able to get my hands on some hard copies that I own. But in other times, it's difficult because you don't want to give money directly to these extremist presses. You don't want to give money to, you know, these movements that are self-publishing these books. QAnon books were quite easy because this falls into the category of what I would call awful but lawful. And I do have a preference for some of these to read in hard copies, especially because they're terrible, terrible writers. They're not very good. Some of them are not interesting or they're so virulent that it takes effort to read. So having that hard copy at time is a little bit easier than being stuck on a screen to do it because you can change your environment where you're reading them. But most of the time I'm printing out some of these books just so I don't have to sit on my computer and read them. And that's the the easiest way to do. And I think digital books is easier because they could spread them far and wide. You're not limited by geographical boundaries. So if you want to read Siege, you know, you could easily find a copy in on chat sites or Telegram or on in mega folders if you have the links. It's you can even find it on archive.org. It's not very difficult to to find. But then you raise the question early on is there's multiple versions. So already there's four different editions of Siege. But even before that, it was just a newsletter that James Mason was putting on. So even when you're looking at these type of primary materials, there's kind of a, a scale in the sense that the early letters would be a, you know, closer to the primary source itself. But a hard copy of the book is still good. But the digital copies don't necessarily deviate too much from some of the physical copies I've been able to compare for the ones that I own. So I think it's still faithful in a way, but there are going to be differences. And like, even in my digital library in Siege, I have something like 26 or 27 different versions. Never mind the editions, but in different languages, released by different people with different covers. So I try to preserve all of them just in case that there's differences. And I have this project in mind one day where I would like to do 
natural language process analysis of these books and going through all the digital copies and trying to extract, you know, analysis and information from them, detect patterns in speech or topics or themes and how this stuff is written over specific periods and in different movements. So there is also benefits from having digital copies. So something that kind of fascinated me then is something can be a primary source, but then it's kind of brought to you via a mediator, right? So, you know, going from newsletters to multiple books to the consumer. In your analysis and in your thinking, how do you account for a mediator or an editor? I mean, is that, are they part of, do you have to go through like copies of Siege and say, this is the one written by James Mason, this is the one that was collated by so-and-so, here's his, his history, and then here's one that was kind of found on a website, here's that history. I don't necessarily always account for that when I'm looking at it from a threat perspective, because I'll usually look at the version that's circulating the most within the ecosystem I'm studying. So even though I'll have multiple copies of the book, let's say of Siege, if I'm looking at a specific network of actors, I'll look at the documents that they're circulating within that ecosystem. So they're the ones that are deeming these are the versions that are valuable to them and these are the ones that they're basing their decisions on and i'll focus it on them rather than basically turning my secondary opinion and determining what i believe as an outsider as a non-extremist what is valuable in this space so i always try to let the threat actors and the extremists determine what is of value and what is a primary text in the context of what they're looking for and i think that's an important way to look at it because you need to consider that you're not the primary audience and the primary consumer of this content as a researcher. It's those who are radicalized, those who believe in these ideologies that are the target audience. And they're the ones that are selecting specific issues and consuming them and sharing them and engaging with them on a regular basis. Is there, is there a problem of scale when it comes to hard copies, when it comes to texts? I mean, it, it seems like you know, getting one book or maybe a hundred PDFs seems pretty easy versus, you know, downloading a hundred thousand images from Instagram. I mean, does, do you think about scale when it comes to sort of the texts and the materials, or is it simply, it's not something you really think about until you get to sort of the social media platforms? I do think of scale in the sense, not necessarily when I find a trove of information my first reflex is download everything and save it i think about scale when it comes to the curating process and future mark is upset at past mark for not kind of cleaning it ahead of time and it's when you start going through this content that you realize the scale of the amount of information that you have and you do get lost in it and and that's a challenge in the way that never mind the amount of information you're going to find on the social media platform that's a different challenge but in primary text alone like I've been curating my library of what I just what I think is you know the most important texts. I have about 852, but from I, before I got to these 852 texts, I had in my folders on on my drives, it was almost 37,000 PDFs. So most of that content is what I would consider to be secondary material or cultural material that the individuals are consuming and are taking, you know, 
an extremist interpretation to non-extremist tasks. So an example of that would be in you know, ecosystems where that are inhabited by individuals who believe in Christian identity, you're going to see, you know, stuff like C.S. Lewis being shared around. Well, C.S. Lewis in and of himself is not an extremist, but you see that these individuals take those texts and put an extremist interpretation on them. So it's important to understand, in a way, the cultural material that's being shared in these spaces, but it's also important to know that that's not something that I would consider anyways to be a primary text, but rather a cultural piece that is found within these ecosystems. And there's a difference between that. But if you're going to analyze it, you could say, hey, they're looking at, you know, these sermons from Pastor X or some letters from Pastor X. And then he mentions C.S. Lewis, they read the book, and then they add their own spin and start understanding what he means and then give an extremist twist to whatever C.S. Lewis was writing. So there is, you know, some significance there. But the scale is is challenging because after a while, it's just you know, monumental because it's easy to collect, but then reading through the content or even cleaning up data is another task in and of itself. And it's very important because you can't just look at everything you collect. You need to drill it down and you need to clean it up to make sure that you're getting the most important information. And that's probably a challenge of being a researcher in this day and age is you have access to more information than you need and more information that you actually engage with in a healthy and structured way and it's it's a challenge because you see researchers starting to use more data-centric methods to try to cope with that but then they're not cleaning the data or engaging with it in a meaningful way and they're leaning on those primary or first step analysis of the quantitatively without really engaging with it and that provides false positives at time and i think that's challenging and that's kind of demonstrating the victimhood of the type of you know environment that we're researching and now engaging, especially as extremists are taking a more digital turn to their engagements and their behaviors. So much of like extremist material is, I mean, please correct me if I'm wrong, is distributed via Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And it really seems like, like it just on a kind of superficial view, their APIs aren't, don't really seem constructed to help the researcher. Right. So it seems like they're constructed for marketing and not sort of gathering intelligence. So when when you begin to approach digital platforms, what is your thinking? What is your analysis? How do you how do you engage something like Instagram where it's, you know, their API is explicitly designed for marketers, not for research? So I always take a platform by platform approach when it comes to scraping data and analyzing it. Some of them you have APIs, which is great because you get structured data. Sometimes you don't have APIs, then you got to do some, you know, janky scraping methods. You get unstructured data, then you got to structure it and clean it up. It gets a little weird, but some platforms, they do offer some tools to researchers. So, you know, Facebook had crowd has CrowdTangle still, even though they neutered it a bit recently. So that gives you, you know, a structured access to Instagram and Facebook data, at least for researchers, which was extremely valuable when I was doing some research on the Boogaloo Boys and QAnon, looking at the disinformation around COVID conspiracy theories. Like it was very valuable for that because you did have access to information, but you also have access to so much information that it becomes problematic. At one point, I had a list uh, for, you know, 
Facebook, it was 472 groups and pages that I had labeled as linked to QAnon with a total of something like 5 million individuals. There was over 100 million posts. So, and it was crazy amount of interaction. So when you're trying to look at that in aggregate, it gets a little nauseating in a sense that yes, you have these really high numbers, you could measure growth, you could measure a lot of things, but the data itself is also not extremely well-structured for extremist researcher in a way. It's very useful if you just want to take a quant approach and look at behaviors, you want to do some NLP, that type of stuff. But if you're trying to do a mixed methods and you're doing this quant qual, it's getting a lot more difficult. And there is very much a need for refinement. And it's challenging when you want to start cleaning data when you have, you know, 4 million accounts that are within this data. And in the case of Facebook, they'll give you content, but they won't give you users because that's how they protect information so you're you're stuck at okay this is extremist content but then you can't determine is the account extremist in and of themselves or are they just sharing content without knowing what it is or you know are they a journalist or a researcher and it's a challenge because in a way you could be collecting information and you're like oh yeah everyone's talking about xyz but in reality you could see at times that it's mostly researchers or media that are talking about this and it's a very small portion of that that is know what would be called extremists and it's very difficult to clean some of this data up depending on what you get as from the platforms twitter is a different challenge where even as an academic with access to their academic api you're still only getting a drop in the bucket and it's a random sample of a percentage of the api data that's given every 15 minutes so you're not necessarily getting a complete image and in a way it's a little bit of a black box as to understand what's going on so you need to acknowledge that you know Hey, if Twitter's giving me whatever, 3% of the entire API every 15 minutes, well, that's important to acknowledge because you're still lacking the 97 other percent and you don't know what's getting in there. And it's challenging if you're just going to look at specific hashtags, because if you're going to look, let's say, hashtag QAnon, you're going to have people like me who are researching it, using it. You're going to have journalists using it. You might have politicians using it. You might have, you know, anti-QAnon people using it and you have the QAnon people using it. And that gets all collected together. And depending on what you get, cleaning it up is very important. But then you have to, again, figure out how you're going to manipulate that and leverage that in a way to get a proper answer. And that's a challenge. And it's always in the, you know, trying to think before you do that, what you're going to get. And then there's still the issue of transparency in the sense that, as a researcher, you need to blindly trust what the platforms are giving you is actual, you know, the the quality data, and it hasn't been washed down or filtered or censored or manipulated in any way on the back end before you get it. It's kind of interesting, the idea of the content versus the user. So, so you're, correct me if I'm wrong, you're downloading content, but you never really get to see how users interact with that primary source so you have so like QAnon like a picture of QAnon from Instagram but you never get to see the comments or is it more that the user itself has been kind of filtered out so you're only getting the image so Instagram is different because that you could pull pages directly but let's say like for Facebook it was different because let's say you have like a Facebook page is going to be controlled by the administrator so if it's the Mark andre Argentino page you're assuming that I'm controlling it and post content is only coming from me but you won't get 
all the comments or you only get some of the content comments from that page. If you're in a group, you'll get all the posts, you'll get some of the comments, but you don't know who said what. So if you find something that you think is extremist, you'll have like within your CSV file, you'll have the extremist text, the URL to the post, but then you manually need to go through the data, click on that post and then do a qualitative assessment of not only the post, but the conversation that took place before to see what led this individual to engage with that content in that specific way. And even more than that, you could just limit to say, okay, that's an extremist moment, but is that account extremist? And then you have to go back to the user's page to be, okay, is it public or did he lock all his stuff down? Then you got to evaluate that page and determine, is this individual an extremist? Is he just a conspiracy theory? Is he something else? It's It gets messy with some of the content. And the challenge is that the most extreme actors behave very differently on a mainstream platform than they do in a closed space. So even let's say you find a network of accelerationists on Telegram, not on Telegram, but on Instagram, sharing, you know, specific style of aesthetic images, the comments and the engagement are quite different than you'd see with them engaging with that post on Telegram or another platform where they could actually talk about it openly because they know that depending on what they say, they might be censored or lose their account or get their content removed. And there's this, this, this weird dynamic where you need to have a mixed message approach. You need to mix the qual and the quant because you have to evaluate the content as you go to make sure that there's no false positives. The same thing when you're doing social network analysis on some platforms, because there's you know reciprocity in a sense, you need to make sure that the network you're looking at really is you know solely those of the individuals you're interested in and you don't have you know individuals who are replying or trolling or trying to counter that message engaging with them and are found in your data set. So that's the, it's a challenge in that space that you need to, to navigate. And it's, it's a mix of both. It's not only the content, it's not only that primary source, but it's how the individual engages with it. That's important as well. So in, in evaluating a primary source, do the comments hold value? Because it, like for me, like interacting with Instagram and YouTube, I always find that the comments are either elucidating or like just a fucking madhouse, right? So on like YouTube, you'll have like, sometimes you'll have like meaningful discussions and then you like on Instagram, it's just like, why? (laughs) But in a more serious note, like, you know, without those comments, you know, A, you know, are the comments worth collecting? And then B, you know, you know, how do they affect or how do, you know, how do they change or affect your understanding of the primary material? The comments are important because it's the insider's reflection on what they're engaging with. But it's also important to know what platform you're on and what movement you're looking at. So if it is, let's say, a group that's prescribed and they're, you find that they have accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, they're probably on these mainstream platforms to share propaganda to either recruit people to organize an event or with the hope that a journalist who's not on the beat will find their awful content and then make a story out of it and give them views. But in another time, they might also be using that as a place, as a way of building community and engaging with it. And that community aspect, that type of social construct within extremist ecosystem is important because you may have a book that's written by a violent extremist, published by a violent extremist like publishing house, But if no one is engaging with that content, yes, you have a primary source, but it's not an important primary source. However, if you see an individual like Siege as an example of this, you're seeing, you know, violent extremists regularly quoting Siege, turning statements from there into memes, 
citing them in podcasts, making videos out of it, that type of comment, the way that they're engaging, manipulating, and changing it is important, has to be considered when you're looking at these primary texts or even primary, any primary source. And it's really interesting when you're seeing this with audio and video, because now you're seeing people like, oh, well, we don't want to read a book, but here, I'm going to create an audio book of Siege. I'm going to create an audio book of Turner Diaries. And, you know, it's, that's an interesting way to understand. And then if you're listening to, you know, a podcast or here's a video, you know, of our, of, of the audio book that we're uploading to YouTube and it's some random title and it's just a voice and there's no video, you could then look at the comments on that and you'll see how people are engaging with it. And that provides an interesting dichotomy for how you want to look at these, these moments. And that adds value to how you're going to understand it because at a specific moment in time, if they're releasing a video on topic X from book X, and it's related to geopolitical events, you could then start understanding how these threat actors are engaging with that content in light of what's happening in the world. So then something that I kind of found interesting was about QAnon, right? And so the thing that I found kind of interesting was that it, it really just kind of seemed like it was, it's so participatory and everybody's kind of engaged in it, right? You have the people who are generating content, then the bread makers, and then kind of the, the more elite, whatever you want to call them. But when you, when you begin to collect and to, to, to think about that, how do you, is there a necessity to create a hierarchy of who's per creating what primary material, right? So like that very base of just people generating Q stories or Q content, and then the bread makers, and then the people at the top, like, how do you, how do you prioritize collection and, and sort of say, you know, this primary material at the top is really the production of these bread makers, which are then interacting with these users? So I think one, one thing that's important to realize is Amar wrote about this, oh, in the paper a couple of years ago. And he was basically saying, he highlighted that basically like participating in online communities tends to foster an increased connection to other members in the online community while also solidifying an individual's membership in it. And what's interesting is that, like you said, QAnon really is about participating. And what I find fascinating about it, especially from an ideological perspective, is that you're not passively consuming content, but you're going to take something, let's say, that Q puts in a Q drop. You're going to have an influencer who's going to interpret it for you. Then someone else might take what the influencer has interpreted, take the Q drop itself, and then turn that into a meme, into a video, into something else. And then they're going to add and link to other conspiracy theories. And you see this on, you know, 8kun or 8chan, depending when you were looking at QAnon, they did it on Reddit, they did it on Facebook or Telegram, is they're coming together to try to understand the meaning behind that latest Q drop, try to understand the meaning behind Donald Trump's latest press conference or whatever Melania was wearing or the color of, you know, Pompeo's tie or whatever you want to do. And that type of engagement with the content, that participatory nature is important within this specific movement itself because it's what brings them together and sustains them continuously. And not only is, are they participating, but then, you know, whoever was controlling the Q account at the time would respond to the movement saying, as you like, they're basically saying, okay, well, if this is the direction the movement's going, I'm going to feed them more content that heads that way and play off of them and react to them. So in a way, Q influenced the movement, but the movement also influenced what Q was doing. 
and that interesting back and forth is fascinating for something like a movement like QAnon rather than what I was traditionally engaging with in like these structured top-down extremist movements where, you know, usually the influencer or the, 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 the person who was doing more of the ideological thinking would say X, Y, and Z, and the movement believed X, Y, and Z, and the participatory was a lot different. So it's interesting to see how they were engaging with them. So in the case of QAnon, it, you kind of have to pick and choose because a lot of it is extremely weird. A lot of it is, you know, a lot of this awful and lawful stuff. So I try to focus on, you know, indicators that they were, you know, going from extremist to violent extremists. But also after a while, it's just, you start collecting so much content with a movement like this, that, you know, it just kind of sits there if you're not really doing anything with it. And I think that's a challenge as well. Whereas if you're looking at more quiet extremist movements that don't produce as much content i think it's easier to manage and try to do some meaningful analysis with what you have i mean like when you when you sit down and kind of think about it i mean how much how much does like the filtering like in a person-to-person kind of network like q participatory network how much do you have to think about filtering suggestion and recommendation and then moving away from hn into highly like something like I would say Instagram where a lot of the behavior is mediated by a recommendation algorithm so does that affect primary sources and sort of the engagement with primary sources or you know maybe a more general question would be does that enter your mind when when looking at this stuff it enters my mind but I try to focus more on the behaviors in the sense that if you're a QAnon influencer on Instagram, it's like you're going to get a following probably from the algorithm. But in reality, this is more community-based. So it's if if you're following the person or someone you who's following you and sees that you're engaging or sharing this content, they'll be made aware of this material. So it's more of that snowballing effect within the, the network. And it's I found Instagram easy to at least monitor versus other groups in the sense that you had the influencer and the content they were putting out, and then you were able to filter out how individuals were engaging with it. The one challenge with Instagram, however, is how a lot of these influencers use stories and highlights to share content, and that's not readily available, at least through the API. You could do some janky scraping using you know, Selenium and then trying to automate the process of you know, curating stuff or even using Hunchly, I could use that to, you know, curate and take snapshots of the pages, but then you still have to go through and clean that data because it's not necessarily structured. The other challenge too is like, yes, they're sharing QAnon content, but how much of it is valuable? Like if you're just reposting content rather than creating and engaging with it, you know, it's, yes, you're, you're reposting it, but I'm a lot more interesting with how people are engaging it with it and how it's modifying their behaviors. You kind of, you touched on something that didn't even cross my mind. And now you said it, and now I'm thinking about it more, which is kind of the temporariness and the ephemeral nature of a lot of this. Like, you know, especially as you pointed out on Instagram, you're, you're going through stories that are only designed to, to last maybe a day, if that, but at the same time, the more dramatic expression of this is how much of Q content just got you know, deleted from Twitter, from Reddit, 
you know, one six, you know, finding content on one six just, you know, kind of gets deleted. So, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that? Like, it's just, it just seems like, you know, you're at the will of a platform who suddenly says, you know, this data is embarrassing to us. So we're just going to sweep it away. Like, how does that, you know, the temporariness and kind of the ephemeralness, potential ephemeralness of the data. That's kind of the challenge with this space because it's a full-time job to be curating information and you always need to be ready to download something around an incident. And it's not only mass gathering, but it's also, oh, there's an attack, like there's a, there's a mass murder, there's a terrorist attack, there's something going on. You have in, like instance that case you start curating, finding the name of the actor, finding their social media accounts, archiving everything and downloading as much information for later on so that you could evaluate it and analyze it. Because once the platforms get a hold of it, they remove it. And that's one of the challenge in this space. And I know it's something that comes up in multiple, you know, multilateral fora is the need for a way to, you know, yeah, you could remove it from the platform, but there needs to be a way to archive and make available to researchers this information because if you want researchers to have quality data to make recommendations for policymakers or to have proper research that will be informative to those who are practitioners you need to give them this type of primary material so they could engage with it the way that i do it i have i have a you know group of other researchers that we gather on twitter i have some on whatsapp and it's basically you know, someone is going to be the first to hear that an event is happening. And then it's, okay, is this of interest? Are we going to start curating? Okay, I found a Facebook account. Here's a Twitter account. Can anyone, okay, you archive this, you archive that. And most of the times it's, here's a group, you know, Dropbox or Google Drive with all the content we found on this incident and we put it there. So for January 6th, it was really, you know, once we realized the platforms were taking everything is just, hourly just downloading and backing up stuff directly from the api using manual osic methods to curate stuff it's it's a challenge in that way reddit's interesting because push shift which is fantastic keeps almost everything so even if the content has been removed you can still access it so if you use push shift you could go and get all the QAnon data from the subreddits that have been deleted so that data is immortal in a way because you have it and that's been an amazing source of information. But again, the value now of those early communities is academic, but it's less so for practitioners. And I think that's important for a lot of this content is, you know, if you're looking at a podcast and there's two podcasts that I follow religiously in accelerationist ecosystems, and, you know, they've been doing this for for a couple of years. The earlier stuff I have, I've listened to, but it's less valuable now than it was at the moment because they're reacting to geopolitical events. They're reacting to what's happening in the world. So it's interesting to also say like it's a primary source, but at times some of these primary sources are more valuable in the present and they might not be as valuable later. So memes, podcasts, you know, in aggregate, you could learn from past behaviors. But if you want to you know, determine immediate threats, it's you need to be curating, collecting, and analyzing in the moment and then moving on that's that sounds absolutely wild like i just i i cannot imagine like it almost seems like the system you're describing is this kind of frankenstein frankenstein's monster of you know automation manual work and then sitting there 
and cleaning up the data and looking for false positives, looking for false negatives. This is, that's wild. <laughs> it's, it's more than a full, like, I'll out myself as a madman, but I do this 16 hours a day, either via my, you know, my day job, my research, my fellowships, everything. Like I'm basically working in this space all the time. And like when an incident happens, I have my computer. Like if you'd see me, I have a setup with six monitors. I run five virtual machines plus my main machine. I have Jupyter Hub spinning and R spinning with codes that I need for depending on the platforms. And when something happens, I just have a set of standard Booleans. And then I put in the extra words that are associated to a specific event. And I just start scraping everything. And then after that, future Mark gets very upset because then he has to filter through all this and determine if it's valuable or not. And a lot of the time, I just don't use some of the stuff because like, eh, it's not really valuable. It wasn't as bad as it was. And I move on, but it's type, you have to be in this, you know, hyper ready mode to collect information because when it happens, you have to react quickly to get this information. And I think that is frustrating as we work in this space. And I hope that's something that improves for extremist researchers and practitioners to be able to curate this information because I'm lucky that I'm connected to an extremely good group of OSINT practitioners and researchers that work in this space, where we just start collating everything as soon as an incident happens. But not everyone is lucky enough to have a group of friends like I have. They're not lucky to be linked to a think tank like ICSR, who has people who are always on the ball looking at this. And, you know, yeah, I don't think there should be this type of accidental gatekeeping because you don't have the skill set or you don't have the time to have access to all this information because you may be an excellent researcher, but if you're missing some of the information or access to some of these skill sets, you might not be able to achieve or succeed to your best potential. And I think that's something that needs to change and make it easier for at least researchers or researchers that, you know, platforms or organizations trust to give them access to this information in a timely manner. So then you kind of raise an interesting question that you're putting in so much work and then the data gets deleted and then eventually maybe the platform will share the data, maybe they won't. But in the case of when the platform does share the data, you know, how do you, what is your thinking process through that? Like I know the Twitter, I know with the 2016 election, they, correct me if I'm wrong, they shared a lot of like tweets and a lot of and a lot of data was available, but you're, you know, how do we consider that? You know, the the platform is a business, and it's giving you data, but it's not, you know, you know, is it true? Are they editing things out? Like, what is? How do you think about that? What is the considerations there? So, I'm a black pill pessimist when it comes to quality of data coming from organizations. So. Like, yeah, Twitter gives you access to their coordinated inauthentic behavior data from disinformation campaigns and all that. But, you know, a lot of it is anonymized for reasons of privacy and personal information, which is fine. But again, it's like you said, like, can we fully trust? Did they remove information that, you know, might put them in a bad light? In all likelihood, no, because it would be so much work on the end of the platforms to filter this out, but, you know, there's always a skeptical, you know, person or side of me that's just like, you know what, if they're disclosing this, it's probably been clean, all the good stuff is gone, I'd rather have gotten it myself, and then compare. 
And it's very difficult because there's no way you're going to have access to enough information to create your own data set where you can do this parallel comparison to say, okay, you know what? I've done this type of research and study to say, I trust the data. Like I personally, I trust the individuals who work in like the dangerous org side of the platforms. I've engaged with them. I know some of them personally, but also there's, you know, a machine and a company behind that. And then you still got to ask yourself, can you trust it? And as a researcher, I think it's always important to caveat how you access your data and where you get it to explain to the reader that, yes, I have this information, but I can't tell you, like, I don't know what the algorithm gave me. I don't have access to the black box that happens prior to the information, or it was anonymized and I don't know how rich or how clean it is. There's a lot of questions that you got to ask yourself. This doesn't mean that you shouldn't be using the data, but I think it's something that you need to be aware of when you're using it. So I want to change topics a bit. and. So after you're done collecting, after you're done curating, indexing, how do you share this data? Is it, you know, is it important to kind of strike a balance between what you're sharing to other researchers, other professionals, and then what you're sharing to the public, to to normies or, you know, whatever their self-references? Like, how do you strike that balance, you know, with, with sharing, with sort of communicating what you've collected? I think it's always important to try to take a step back. And it's something that I still have issues doing, but I try to make a conscious effort in the sense that I spend so much time in these ecosystems that there's two negatives in the sense that there might be something that's very important and valuable, but I see it as something normal because I've seen it so many times that I might exclude it. Or there's something that might actually be harmful, but because I spend so much time in these ecosystems, outside observers or the normies might be like, oh my God, this is shocking and terrible. Why are you sharing this? So there is that difficult balance to maintain, but then there's also this type of concept of, you know, you don't want to be a tertiary or tertiary or secondary propagandist. You don't want to share any type of material that people could use uh, when it comes to, you know, tactic techniques or procedures that they could make weapons or make explosives or learn a skill set that could be dangerous. There's a lot of things that you got to be conscious of. And when it comes to sharing information, I really, you know, there's probably a handful of academics that I will share information with. There's probably, I think I could count the journalists on one hand that I've ever shared information with. And it's usually people who have demonstrated to be some of the best on the beats that they're on. And, you know, when it comes to OSIN practitioners, that I'm a little more open because some of the communities I'm in are closed and it's by invite only and everyone kind of shares their methods or their data or their their techniques and that's part of the participatory nature of that community when it comes to the public i try to be very careful and selective uh, on what i choose and you know it's 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 a delicate balance because you want to inform people but you don't want to also play the fear card or the oh my god look how awful this is and start dumping all the terrible awful things that are there and I think that's a, a delicate balance when it comes to, you know, a lot of the day-to-day content. When it comes to things like primary text and primary sources, I'm trying to take a different approach. And this is something I've been working on with uh, ICSR for a year now since they, they picked me up. It was, was going to be almost a year now. I had put out a tweet, I think, last December in 2020. And I was like, look, I have a crap ton of primary books and documents from violent extremist ecosystems and they're just sitting on a hard drive 
And I think more people need to know about it because I remember reading some news stories at the time where people had just discovered these books and they were giving terrible interpretations or they were not really engaging with it properly and they had like janky versions. And for me, it's like, you know what, you need to do your job, but you're not familiar enough with these spaces to get the proper material. So I've basically been working with Blythe Crawford, Anna Rose, and Florence Keene, and we've been curating all this material to create what we're calling the Read Database, or the Repository of Extremism Aligned Documents. And we're going to make available to a select audience an access to the curated primary texts for now that I've been collecting and others in the research team have collected. And it's going to be for those with institutional addresses that are academics, journalists that are part of the platforms or civil society NGOs, as well as uh, policymakers. So that those who do not have the skill set or understand the ecosystems enough to know where to find these books or documents will be able to access them. And then people could do research on this material, engage with it in a meaningful way to better inform the public without having to say, oh, I really want to read this book, or, oh, I actually never engaged with this document, or I didn't even know this existed. So to give them maybe a better understanding of these spaces. So we're starting with books. And the goal is, once we do our beta test in the next couple of weeks with a very small group of individuals, we're hoping to release it by the end of year. And then as time goes on, we'd like to add videos and, you know, audiobooks and podcasts and movies and as much of this primary material as possible. So the goal is to try to make this available to those who work in these spaces so that they could better inform the public. And then hopefully, and that's the risk, is to make sure that none of this really gets leaked and a massive dump is made. But there is a balance in the sense that all of the stuff that we have is open source. And if you would spend as much time as I have in these spaces, and I'm sure some researchers have, you probably have a lot of the same contents or most of this. And what I'm hoping is this also becomes a type of way of crowdsourcing information because there are a lot of practitioners who've been here way longer than I have. And I know that they have access to documents that I might not be familiar with. So I'm hoping that also comes to be an exchange to building this, you know, amazing repository of extremist material. That's awesome. That uh, reminds me, I think over at KU, they have the James Mason collection. I think it's the James Mason collection and it's, it's with the same goals in mind. Like you, you're creating limited access, but you're showing people like, you know, here's the document, here's the context and et cetera. That sounds really awesome to be awesome to be, to be, sounds really cool. (laughs) It is. It's been awesome. It's also been a massive headache in the sense that, you know, you're going through this and there's an entire process and it really makes you think about what is an extremist document? How are you labeling these? What is an extremist, you know, publisher? Which of this stuff is, you know, is a primary text or which of this is just actually awful and lawful? And it's really trying to go through all of this. And then there's just the entire manual side of, okay, well, you need to put in the authors, the dates, and you got to manually enter a lot of this information. Some of these documents are anonymous. You don't know where the dates are from. And like when you go through, let's say you find a trove of national, you find a national socialist library, there's a lot of trash in there. So it's really going through and trying to find everything and code it. And ultimately it's, you know, trying to create, I created a series of buckets to determine what would and would not be included within the database. And it's, it's really a 
it's been an interesting process. It's also been a frustrating one, but I am looking forward to being able to make this public. And it's really to find other researchers to collaborate with to do this type of work, because I think there's a lot of potential to engage with a lot of these documents. I've tried to read most of them. I'm almost at the halfway point out of all the documents that will be in the, in the database. So if I don't add too many of the years, I might be able to finish this in three or four years. But it's been interesting to actually have access to these for the past five years in my own collection and engage with them and read with them and start understanding the mindset behind these individuals because it's easy to think of an extremist as an uneducated or a stupid person. But there's a lot of ideologues that really engage with this content at a very high level. And you know, when you're seeing them recommend books, it's not only, oh, we want to recommend this, but then you're seeing them actually talk about that and engage with them and referencing them later on in podcasts or memes or whatever else they're doing. Or you even see it in manifestos, you know, those who perpetrated horrendous acts, you'll see them reference some of these texts within their own books. So you start going back like, oh, what inspired them? What is the meaning behind this? How are they engaging with it? So I think there's an important there. So even making this accessible is only a small step because at that point, it's something that we've curated as a team to make available. But I think it's still important to try to find how individuals within these ecosystems are still going to engage with them. So I hope that this is just the first step in this space. And it's really going to be limited to these type of primary tiers. We're not going to be including social media data. We're not going to be including anything like that. And we're trying to include stuff that is, you know, as readily available as possible. And most of this is just because a lot of us have done the work and we just want to make it available. It's not a big secret in a way of what the content that we have. When you, this is going to sound like a, a weird question, but when you go to make that material available and you, you begin to push it out to the public, do you, do you ever have difficulty with kind of like, kind of like AWS or digital ocean and saying like, Oh, that's extremist material. You can't host it here. Cause I always find like, like the, the, their security teams, you know, tend to be kind of be kind of sensitive to this material. And, and it's just like, Oh, you know, we don't care who publishes it. It doesn't matter. You know, we don't see a difference between researcher or extremist. The material can't be published or can't be hosted on our infrastructure. So, we haven't had that issue yet. The site isn't live, but we've uploaded the documents and we haven't had that issue yet. I think one advantage that we might have is if we do run into issues, the Global Network for, for Global Network on Extremism Technology, which is part of ICSR, is, works closely with the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism and Tech Against Terrorism, and the platforms are part of that. There is an inherent value to the database that we're creating. So if we run into that problem, I guess we'll have to bring it to the table and see what can be done. But when you think about it, you know, Aaron's been running jihadology for years. He's ran into a couple of issues over the years, but the site's still there, the content's still there. I don't think, or I hope it's not going to be a big issue, knock on wood, don't want to jinx myself. But I think it is something to consider. I'm more worried about individuals not using the material responsibly. But again, you're never going to have full control on what an individual does with the content. True, true, true. So we, we've been talking for about an hour and I think we, we've covered a lot. So as, as kind of our tradition, when we, when we end the show, we ended on the note of, 
you as the speaker giving us something to think about, something to chew on. This is kind of like a wild card question. So you, whatever you think that the audience would find valuable that we haven't mentioned or something that the audience would find valuable that we have mentioned, you know, something to think about. I think it's important for me, and it's probably more of a challenge for researchers in this space, but it's if you're not engaging with this primary content and not only consuming it yourself, but then looking at how individuals are engaging with it within their own community and changing it and manipulating it, you're missing a key component of what's taking place. Now, it does depend on the type of researcher you are and what research you're doing, but I think it is important to take that in consideration and to engage with it and use this material to inform your research and your findings. And I think it's more for people to take that in consideration and really try to go at it. But it does come with a caveat that there is a dimension to it where you need to be you know, psychologically and mentally prepared to engage with this the same way that you kind of have to do if you're spending time in these ecosystems when you're consuming of this content, this primary content, it does take a toll on you in the long term. And it's important to realize that. So it's also good to always, you know, check yourself and make sure that you are comfortable engaging with this content and doing so. And if you're not, that's all right. And, you know, it's good on you for being able to realize that. But I do think it's important to take a closer look at these primary documents and use them in your research. Awesome. Those are great words. That was Mark Andre Argentino. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you. (laughs)